Well, good morning, everyone. Wow. Excited to be here. Give me a drink. Um, and hey, I want to say, and I, I apologize for those of you that might be watching online or might be watching this video um, uh, over our website. Uh, I apologize for not welcoming you last week. That was something I was like thinking about doing and even had it in my notes and I didn't know it. So in the camera, we want to say welcome you. We want to say welcome to everybody that's here. Uh, how did everybody survive that storm last night? Good, bad, indifferent? That was crazy. Like, we had, we had lightning, like, right across the field from our house. Took, we wa- who was out of power? We were out of power, for sure. It came on somewhere in the middle of the night. We believed in faith when we went to bed that we should plug our cell phones in just in case they could charge, you know, if it came back on. And at some point, I don't even remember what time, but sometime in the middle of the night, um, our power came on. But that was intense. We took a little videotape of it and uh, some still pictures and... Uh, it was so, t- it, I'm, sh- I'm sure it was the same for everybody, but you could barely see across the road at our house from our porch. That's how heavy it was. It was, uh, uh, Tammy had an observation coming down here this morning that coming south on 395, if you put a bow and a stern on this building, it would look just like Noah's Ark. And that was all derived from last, last night's storm. Have you guys ever thought about that? If you drive south and you look at this, you think, man, that looks just like Noah's Ark. It's got that centerpiece that kicks up. If we could just build a bow and a stern, even if it's fake, uh, we would be ready. We would be ready. I'm joking. Um, I am joking. Hey, thank you for following our series on getting stronger, getting stronger in our faith. Uh, we're covering a variety of topics. Um, if you wonder if there's a... Um, if there's a daisy chain to the topics that we're covering, um, sometimes there will be and sometimes there won't be. And um, they're just topics that the Lord has put on my heart to, uh, to cover from the Bible. I think it's good that we look into uh, the different areas of our Christian life, the different areas of our faith, and, and ask ourselves the question and study together and talk about this uh, throughout the week and look at it on Sunday, that we kind of set the tone. What are the things that God uses to make us stronger in our faith? What are the things, and, and you can think back in your own life, you can think back and say, wow, that event, or those series of events, or that difficult time, or that wonderful time, all of those things God used in your life, and I know He used those types of things in my life, to make us stronger. So what are some of those elements? And we've looked at a variety of them so far. We've looked at unity, the idea of unity, and that God uses unity actually to build strength into our Christian walk. Uh, we looked at the, the second one was kind of the flip side instead of unity. We looked at the idea of adversity, that actually God uses adversity in our lives to make us stronger. Uh, we looked at the idea of hope last week. We looked at the idea of hope and how God uses hope to strengthen his people. Today we're going to look at something that's a little bit different. Today we're going to look at the idea in the area of choices and how choices can make us stronger. In every story in the Bible, it seems like, in the Old Testament, the events of creation through the story of Adam in Genesis, the nation of Israel's ups and downs, the stories about the miracles and 
in the book of Exodus, and we preached through those and studied through those a couple years ago. The battles that were won, the battles that were lost, the land that was conquered, the land that wasn't conquered, the giants and the tribes that needed to be defeated, the loss of focus on the Lord that the nation of Israel had at times being led away to Babylon in captivity and coming back under Nehemiah's leadership. All of these stories, in their essence, have this whole idea wrapped around them of choices. Of choices. Choices that, that these people made, that this nation made, that other nations made. All of these stories and more, if you look, just keeps doing a 30,000 foot flyover of the Bible, you'll flip the pages into the New Testament and through the Gospels you'll see Jesus teaching by parables and in those parables were people that were making choices, some good, some not so good, some really, really bad choices, but he spoke in parables and then of course we finished several weeks ago on the preaching through the book of Acts and you'll see that even through that whole storyline, the transition from Jesus' resurrection into the beginning, very birth of the church and the, the growth of the church and that whole storyline, clear to Paul making it to Rome, you'll see that there's people making choices. Paul made a lot of choices. Peter made a lot of choices. The apostles made tons of choices. The disciples made choices. The Roman leadership made choices. The Jewish leadership, they all made choices. And choices are critical, critical to our Christian faith. They're critical to our Christian faith. The apostles' ministry, despite the persecution, the choices they made spread the gospel all around the known world. That was a conscious decision that they made based upon their convictions of who Jesus is. And so those choices, those, we are recipients, if you will, we're recipients of their choice to undergo the difficult times that they went through. We're, we're the modern day, down the line lineage of the apostles and the disciples spreading the gospel. So from creation to revelation, every story Every story in the Bible is an expression of this. It's an expression of God extending His hand to mankind and mankind's choice in response. You guys get that? Every story in the Word is an expression of God extending His hand to mankind and mankind's choice in response. There's a danger in that because you would say, what about in the Old Testament where God says, you know, all of these tribes need to be obliterated. But if you go back up the storyline, you will see somewhere in there God's hand of grace extended to a people who chose not to take it, chose not to follow the ways of God, chose to do their own thing, whatever the case is, and then down the line you will see, wow, God's calling for these people to, uh, to be wiped out. And a lot of times there's a focus on the last part and saying God is unjust how can a loving God do that? How can a loving God do, do this, what it says right here? And there's a failure to know the word. There's a failure to know the storyline where you go back and see where people like Esau walked away. Right? Where people like Cain walked away. A couple of examples 
from deep into the Old Testament. So how is making decisions relevant to our growth in Christ? That's a question that, um, that I've been pondering throughout the course of this week. How is making decisions relevant to our growth in Christ? And here's the answer. I'll give it to you ahead of time, is that every choice is an opportunity to grow. Every choice that we make, even if it's a bad choice, there's an opportunity to come through that and grow. God develops the fruit of the Spirit in your life by allowing your experience, allowing you to experience circumstances in which you're tempted to express, express the exact opposite quality. Character development always involves a choice, and temptation provides that opportunity. Pastor Rick Warren. So God is developing you He's developing me, and, and you can't unlink the choices that we make in that process. They are a part of the process. And temptation creates an opportunity for us to do what? For us to choose to follow God or fall to the temptation and not follow God. So choices are critical, critical to our Christian faith, and it's critical <clears throat> uh, in the sense that we grow out of those choices. The choices that we make, responding to the gospel is a great start. Trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior is a great start. Coming under his authority and the authority of the scriptures. Living according to the word. The choices that we make in regard to our lives. The choices that we make in regard to our marriages. The choices that we make in regard to our families. The choices that we make in regard to church life and ministry. Or the choices that we make in the workplace or in our community. The choices in everyday life are a barometer of our spiritual life. You guys get that? The choices that we make are a barometer. They, 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 they expose where our, as Christ followers, they expose where our Christian walk is at in a lot of ways. They will expose if we're getting stronger and growing in our faith, or they will expose if we are stagnant and idle in our faith. Or sometimes our choices expose that we're getting weaker, actually. That we're shrinking in our faith. The old, the old uh, phrase there that many would use is, is this word, backslide. They were a backslidden believer. I mean, it's not a very popular term today, but it's the truth and reality, oftentimes, of the choices that we make. The choices that we make, big or small, will affect the course of our life for the good and the bad. Before we get into our main passage, I want to start with this passage. There's very simple encouragement slash warning in regard to choices that the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6. If you want to thumb there real quick, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. I'm reading from the New King James Version, if you're curious. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. Don't be fooled. Don't be mistaken. Don't, don't be cloudy about this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he also will reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 
Don't be deceived. The choices that we make, the things that we em- em- embark upon, the things that we, cre- that we set as priority in our lives will have an effect. That effect will be good or bad. If we choose to sow to the flesh of the flesh, we will reap that corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, then in the Spirit we will reap that everlasting life. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, and I'm sure for some of us, maybe it's your favorite story too, is all about choices. In fact, I think out of this passage that we're going to go to is one of the, I put probably in the top ten questions that's stated in the Bible. Personally, that's kind of how I rank this question that we'll get to. But it's a great story. It's a story of, of uh, insurmountable odds, of confidence in God, coming against wickedness and idolatry. In fact, one of the best questions, that, that question is, is right at the heart, right at the beginning of the whole scene. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we'll let you get there, and if you don't have a Bible or don't have your Bible on your smartphone, I think we'll have it up on the overhead that question is all about the choices that that are being made now as we turn to first kings 18 there's there's kind of three aspects to first kings 18 and it's and it's broke up this way there's a prelude verses 1 through 19 a main event which is the majority of where we're going to be and then there's a postlude which is verses 41 through 46 to understand the events even that lead up to the prelude of chapter 18, we need to take a glimpse at two characters. Uh, I don't hear of anybody naming their little boy or their little girl today. There's, two, there's, there's three names, I think, that really stick out in the Bible that everybody's like, nah, I'm not going to name my baby that. Uh, the first one that would come to my mind would be the, the name Judas. Anybody know a Judas, like, personally? Anybody know a Judas? Is anybody friends with anybody on the internet and social media that's named Judas? Raise your hand. I'm scanning because I really want to. Nobody names their little boy Judas anymore. Uh, that's an obvious one, right? Or who? Jonathan's son. Yeah, nobody's naming, his, naming their little guy that either. The two that I'm thinking about, though, are out of 1 Kings 18. I don't know. Does anybody know a little boy named Ahab? No? Nobody? Anybody out there watching on social media? Like, you can text in. You can text in to me. You can text my cell phone number, or you can comment in the comment section. If you know somebody that's a little boy named, or a guy, I guess a guy. We'll just put it that way, a guy. Maybe he's growing up named Ahab. How about a little girl named Jezebel? Who wants to name your little girl? Who wants to name daddy's little princess Jezebel? Anybody? Did anybody here ever think of that when you had your kids? Did the name ever cross your mind? Everybody's scared to death. All hands are underneath themselves. Heads are like, I'm not even going to wiggle my head. But nobody wants to name your little girl Jezebel right? The two characters leading up to chapter 18, of course, uh, are King Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Uh, And actually, back two chapters in chapter 16, 
we get a real good introduction to Ahab and Jezebel. I'll just read that for you, or you can skim back. I'm not sure if it's on the screen or not, but um, 1 Kings 16, verses 29 through 33, introduces us to this wicked duo of leadership. Verse 29 says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. 22 years. This guy was at the throne. Verse 30. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, here's the uh, descriptor, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Wow. That's quite a uh, sentence. Verse 31 goes on to say, And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as what? Jezebel, the daughter of Ethabal, king of the Sidians. And he went on, <coughs> and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That is a bad rap sheet if you're the king. This guy was terrible. I mean, he was horrible. Did more to provoke the Lord's anger than all the rest of the kings before him? Not only did he, not only did he uh, uh, worship Baal, but he made a big production out of it, right? He built a wooden image. He, he created a, a whole system and a temple to Baal. These two are one wicked duo. Um, I was thinking while I was studying through this, imagine if it were today, imagine the memes that would be on social media about these two, right? Can you imagine that for a second? Like, all right, I'm just going to, this is time for confession. I love reading the memes on social media, as long as they're clean, as long as they're decent, and especially if they're really funny. And there's a lot of them that are really, really funny. But these two would be at the top of the list, right? These two would um, far, 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 far exceed our famous couple, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton. Like, Bill and Hillary Clinton would have nothing by comparison to King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Imagine for a moment um, that it went this way, that they would have a lot of people that loved him and a lot of people that hated them for what they were doing. Ahab and Jezebel had one formidable foe, God's prophet Elijah, who in chapter 17 had declared a drought in the land. And there was kind of this, after he de declared this drought and, 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 and the people were struggling, the people, you can read it for yourself in chapter 16, 17, and 18. They were really struggling. There was kind of this cat and mouse game between King Ahab and the prophet Elijah. And in that prelude of chapter 18, God tells Elijah to go and to present himself to the king or to come before the king. There had been times where they were in one place than the other and and Ahab was kind of out to get him, and uh, it, it didn't happen. It kept not happening. And so Elijah 
comes forth and he appears first to a man named Obadiah in chapter 18 in those early verses. Now Obadiah, who was a God-fearing man, who had secretly rescued a hundred of God's prophets, uh, good prophets from Jezebel's massacre. Um, Ahab was working for King Ahab, or Obadiah was working for King Ahab. Um, Obadiah feared for his own life because of Ahab, because Ahab was on the hunt for him. So when Elijah comes to Obadiah, he's like, whoa, 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 are you trying to get me killed? Um, are, you trying to, are you trying to take me out in the process? And, and none of that happened. Uh, but I want to pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 18, if you're there. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. I just wanted to set that stage a little bit. Then it happened, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. I'm going to pause right there to make this point. Be aware of who's influencing your decisions. When we talk about choices, when we talk about uh, making life choices, directional choices, following God choices, uh, one of the biggest choices that we need to make in our lives as Christ followers is who's influencing these decisions? Who's influencing your choices? See, Ahab wanted to pin it all on Elijah. He wanted to put all the blame for what was going on, all the trouble, all the, the, uh, the drought, all of that on Elijah. Elijah just simply prophesied what God had told him about the drought. He was just the messenger. But Ahab was focused on him. You can look at it this way, that the world will say that those who follow God are the problem. That's our modern-day context of how you could take this and, and put it into a application. Our world, our culture would say, you know, the real problem is all the people that are Christians or say they follow God. That's really the problems that we have in our world. I had relatives, I remember when I was a kid at a family reunion that uh, uh, one of my dad's cousins, actually, who his whole stance in, in, in argument or, or his stance in the conversation, it didn't really get to an argument, I don't think, but that essentially that the, the, all the ills in the world, um, all the war, all the uh, difficulties, all the struggles through history are because of Christians. That was his belief. What it had, had influenced him to get to that point? What, what influences made him uh, create that mentality and, and, and decide to believe that? I'm not sure. I've never asked him. But the world would say that those who follow God are the problem. God says it's different. God says the problem is actually sin. God says the problem is sin. From the beginning, the problem is sin. It's always been the problem from the beginning. And Elijah is letting Ahab know that all the problems that they were experiencing is due to the sin of idolatry, more specifically, Baal worship. The same dynamics are true today. The same dynamics are true today. So let's be aware of who's influencing our decisions. There will always be a main influence in any culture. 
And when God is removed, idolatry will move in. And God wants Israel, and God wants us to know, he wanted Israel to know, still wants the nation of Israel to know, and he wants us to know who he is. So Elijah goes on to say in verse 19, Now therefore send and gather all of Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah's kind of setting the stage. He says, you know what? Let's just get it on. Let's just go, everybody. You bring your whole team. You bring, you bring all that you have to bear down on Baal worship. Let's not forget all the folks in the nation. They can come and fill the stands, and we're going to have a showdown right up on Mount Carmel. Let's get it, let's get it going. So Ahab, verse 20, so Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, and here's one of the best questions in the Bible, how long will you falter between two opinions? He asked the people, speaking of idolatry, (laughs) that's a little, um, Sound tech humor. He asked the people. He wasn't talking to the pro, he wasn't talking to the prophets of Baal. He asked the people, "How long are you going to falter between two opinions? How long are you going to falter between two opinions?" See, God's bringing His people to a point of decision, one way or the other. The simple question is, is who are you going to follow? Who are you going to follow? The ancient Hebrew word <clears throat> that's translated there for, fa- for falter means to limp, to halt, to hop, to dance, or to leap. It's the same word that's used down further in the text, 1 Kings 18.26, where the prophets of Baal leaped about the altar. It could easily be translated this way when Elijah said it. How long will you dance between two opinions? The truth for them, for the truth for the nation of Israel in 1 Kings 18, and often the truth for us today, is there's a lot of part-time God followers. There's a lot of part-time God followers. Faltering between two opinions. Well, I want God over here on Sunday. And I want him to make sure that my family's okay. And I wanted this and I wanted that. So I want God over here part time. But I don't want to completely not take my foot out of the world and all the world has to offer. That's a part time believer. That's riding the fence. God's really good at pushing people off a fence. Uh, Really good. You know what the problem is with Working part-time. What's the, you guys tell me, what's the problem with working for part-time? What's the number one problem with working part-time? You don't get enough return. Don't get enough return. That's, a, that's a good answer, not the answer I'm looking for. What's the problem with working part-time as opposed to full-time? Except, despite the money. Well, <laughs> that's a good answer. The extra time that you have on your hands. Somebody said something else. Yeah, the salary, so take the money out of the case. Nobody works for money anyway. But 
Linda said something. What did you say? The benefits, right? The problem with part-time as opposed to full-time, and everybody knows it that's out there working, is the difference is, is the benefits. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel was not getting because they were part-time followers. And that same truth is true today as well. That when you're a part-time follower of Jesus, you don't get the benefits because it's, 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 it's situational. It's situational. And God knows when people are completely following Him, wholly following Him, or when they're nibbling around the edges, looking for, looking, looking for more, or when they're nibbling around the edges, just taking just enough to feel good about what they're doing and, and how their life is. Right? God's always bringing His people to a point of decision. That's why choices are so critical. And that's the issue here. God's calling the nation of Israel through Elijah to full-time following, to make a choice. The amount of growth that we will experience is directly related to the level of our commitment. There is a, there is a, a, a line between our experience and, and following God Right? There's a, there's a, I don't know if I'd call it a straight line necessarily because sometimes we don't see the results until long after. But there is a connection between our growth and our commitment. Let's keep moving on in 1 Kings. Oh, before I get there, I want to share this quote. One of my favorites, Tony Evans. If you like listening to KMBI, you can listen to Tony Evans. If we're going to be a part-time Christian, don't expect the full-time miracles. That kind of went with the, uh, the whole part-time, full-time following of the Lord. If we're going to be a part-time Christian, hey, we can't expect the full-time miracles of God. So there's really just two options. Elijah's bringing the nation of Israel to two options. God's bringing them to two options. To follow the Lord, to follow God, creator, sustainer, defender, redeemer, Savior, the author of life, or to follow Baal, the idol. You know what an idol is? It's an unauthorized noun. That's a great explanation for what an idol is. It's an unauthorized noun, person, place, or thing. An unauthorized noun that we look to for the source of a need being met. God calls us to look only to Him. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. There's your test. All right, let's do the exact same thing. You guys over here, you make your preparation. I'll do the exact same thing. I'll make my preparation. They'll look identical, and we'll see what happens. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. So cheers from the crowd. 
Verse 25, Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and, <clears throat> and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us! Guess what? There was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. There's that connection back to faltering. They left about the altar in which they had made. Verse 27, as soon as it was noon, Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping, and he must be awakened. And so they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But guess what? There's no voice. There was nobody answering. Nobody on the other end of the line. No one paid attention. So Elijah's kind of mocking him up a little bit. Hey, 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 I think he's asleep. You've got to get real loud. You've got to yell, scream. You've got to stomp. You've got to, what? You've got to cut yourselves. You guys want to know where cutting comes from? It's a demonic activity that harkens back to worshiping Baal. And I'll tell you what, parents, if you're not aware, it's a bigger issue in our culture than we even know. You guys get what I'm talking about? Some people's like, cutting, what do you mean? Cutting, making little cuts until you bleed, making little marks on your arm, on your leg. At its source, at its heart, it's demonic. You can hearken right back. You can look right here in 1 Kings. Exposes it very well. Regardless of how much they cut themselves, regardless of how much they cried, and screamed, regardless of all of that, guess what? There was no voice. There was no answer. No one paying attention. I want to make this point right here, that the, and an idol is an illusion of, of a provider. An idol, that false provider, it's an illusion. An idol is an illusion of a provider, but in truth... Uh, it's un, there, 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 there's no relationship there is what I want to get to. There's a lot of activity going on amongst the prophets. Guess what? Twice here, Elijah says, the author tells us, hey, there's, there's no response. It's a great indication. There's no relationship there. It's a lot of busy activity to try to get what you want or try to get from a God that's not real what you want. But there's no relationship at all. Verse 26 says, and 29 tell us that. There's no voice, no one answered. There was no voice, no one answered. Actually, verse 29 adds this one, and nobody paid attention. So we're running after idols. That aspect of our lives, if we've if we got a foot in the world and a, and, and a foot in Christianity, there's going to be an aspect there that there's no response there's no response. There's nothing relational there. On the other side, God is saying, hey, I want you to follow me. Follow me. Follow me. I will relate with you. I want to create a relationship with you. I love you. I care for you. I want to provide for you. I want to protect you. I want to change you. And it's all about relationship. 
Verse 30, And then Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So first he's remembering their history. He's remembering what God had said in the beginning. It's a great place to start. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two selahs of seed. Then he put wood, <coughs> excuse me, and he put the wood in order, cut the bulls in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And then they did it a second time. And he said, hey, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. That's a lot of water. If you can imagine, uh, I'll try to put a little bit of context. This would be a, like a massive bonfire, uh, because uh, a slaughtered critter, <laughs> a slaughtered bull, I don't know, what are you going to have? Seven, eight hundred pounds of meat, probably, at least. Maybe a little more, maybe... If it's big enough, a thousand pounds. So you got to let's just use good round figures. If you have a thousand pounds of meat cut into pieces, that's a big pile of meat, and then that's up all on top of all the rest of the wood. There's a big trench around it. All this water. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. More water. More water. More water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, "Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel." Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Acknowledgement of who God is. Acknowledgement of who we are. And acknowledgement of what we are supposed to do according to what God says. All three things should influence our decision-making process. Verse 37 says, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. That's God's heart for his people. That's God's heart for his people. That this people would know that you are the Lord God. Singular. That's not about being half here and half here and following this this one a little bit and that one a little bit. It's that you are the Lord God. That's it. No second place. Nobody else on the list. And that you have turned their hearts back to you again. That's Elijah's prayer. That's what he's gaming for. That's what he's looking for. And that's what God is looking for. The people's hearts would be turned back to him again. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it looked up, licked up the water that was in the trench. When God shows up on the scene, big things happen. Big things happen. Everything got consumed. Now when all the people had saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. That's the response that God's looking for. 
That's the choice to follow. That's the response. That's the informed decision that helps people grow. Right there. The Lord's God. When we can have that singular focus, when we can extract out or allow allow God to extract out of us the idolatry, a lot like He did for the nation of Israel clear back when they're coming out of Exodus, there's this uh, tension and struggle and they, they bring with them all this idolatry and it's, frankly, it's still a part of them as a nation and God's saying, no more, no more, no more and they continue to struggle with it. Continue to struggle with it. Clear tell captivity, then coming out of captivity, they shifted from half idolatry to uh, full pride and uh, self-righteousness, which is, I'm not sure that's better. Um, But the, the, the point that I'm trying to get to is that their response in the moment was the right response. Verse 40, And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, Do not let one of them escape. So they seize them. Then if you only ever read this verse, this part out of the Bible and took it out of context, you would be right back to one of my earlier questions. Well, how come God's so mean? So then they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook brook Kishon and executed them there. Oh, why did that happen? God was dealing with idolatry. And he doesn't deal with idolatry in half measures. He doesn't just nibble at the edge. He's coming to confront idolatry in their lives. He's coming to always confront idolatry in our lives if we're part-time in it. So, eh, a little here, a little there. Looking good on Sunday, looking great on Saturday night. That type of part-time in it. God says no more. God says no more. So when God shows up, it's absolutely unmistakable. His demonstration of power, burning up everything, including the water, his drawing of the people, the phrase there that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Of course, Israel's choice to respond. They chose to respond. It's important there in verse 39. Like Israel, we see God at work. We see God at work all around us. Are we falling in worship a God that is working in our lives every single day? A God that is working all around us every single day? Are we stuck on the circumstances? Are we stuck on the frustrations? Are we stuck on the negative? The things that are going on in our culture dragging us down? Are we seeing God at work Are we seeing God at work in great ways like last week's testimony of protection coming across the United States getting close to a big storm right in front of you and guess what? A window opened up an opportunity to land a plane in Rapid City, South Dakota. Is that right? God's provision, God's protection Are we seeing it happen all around us? And are we responding through worship? It's an awesome miracle that God uh, does right here. It's an awesome story. Precipitated by an awesome question. That turn hearts towards God. 
And even as awesome as this story is, it does not pale in comparison to the miracle of Jesus dying for you and me. It doesn't pale in comparison. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying that God wasn't at work. Absolutely. Free gift of salvation through Jesus. Payment of sin at Calvary. was beyond, really, beyond comprehension. I think a lot of times, I know, I'm kind of like mentally, I can wrap my head around it. But if we, we have all our whole lives and probably all of eternity to, to explore the, um, the insane events and, and, and attributes of what God was doing and His plan through Calvary. And this miracle that we just read was, was tremendous, no doubt. But the fact that God would send his only son, the fact that Jesus would voluntarily step out of heaven. And from an earthly perspective, Calvary looked like this, this, get this guy out of our lives, he's causing all this trouble, right? From the Jews' perspective, he's a, he's a heretic, he's blaspheming, he's breaking our laws. He needs to go from the Romans' perspective. He's just kind of a pain in the rear end. So get him out of the way. And culturally, if we stood in those days in Jerusalem, what we would experience, what we would see, maybe what the disciples even thought of and felt, it's like, where is God at? Where is God at? And I wonder sometimes if some of the nation of Israel that was right there, right before the fire fell, was saying, hmm, Baal's had his chance. It didn't really work. Where's God at? And here's what I want to leave us with this thought. Oftentimes when it looks like God is doing nothing, God's doing his very best work. That's the essence of Calvary. From a human perspective, it looked like a, uh, a quick attempt to get rid of a rabble-rouser. Just get him out of the way. And, where's, and, and if you were one of Jesus' followers, you say, where's God? They all abandoned him. That's how bad it got for them. They all decided, hey, he's a goner. Let's hide on back and go fishing. If you're Matthew, let's get on back to tax collecting. Right? Skimming a little off the top. It looked bleak. It looked horrible. It was horrible. But then God showed up. And in a sense, at Calvary, fire fell because it's the fire of God through the work of Christ that purifies us from our sins. Amen? So when it looks sometimes when you're in the middle of those decision-making points, when it looks sometime like, man, where is God? Doesn't seem like he's doing anything. Doesn't look like Elijah's going to make it here. He's going up against a big team. It doesn't look like Jesus is going to make it here. He can't get off the cross. Not that he couldn't. He chose not to, actually, for you and for me. But when it looks like God is absent, Rest assured, that's the time when God is working 
out his best plan for you and for me. Three questions to consider as we leave today, if you want to write them down. Are our choices reflective of our dependency on God's grace and leading in our life? I remember several years ago we went through with the high schoolers. We had this, and I tried to find this uh, this list of questions on how to make a biblical uh, uh, decision. And for the life of me, we found that list years that we we had it, we lost it. A couple years later, we found it again, and um, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, now it's lost again. And so at some point, we're going to resurrect this list. Um, I think I know who has a copy, and. Um, but it's, it's, ten, it's ten questions to ask on how to make uh, a biblical decision. And it's really good. We taught it to our high school kids years ago. I probably need to refresh that a little bit. But three questions that I came up, um, which would be maybe a bit of a short summary of that list of ten. Are, are our choices reflective of our dependency on God's grace and leading in our life? Are our choices an attempt to earn something from God? Sometimes that's a hard question to ask yourself. Am I trying to get something from God? Am I trying to, am I, am, and what I'm, what I'm doing, am I trying to somehow, you know, get something extra from God here? Win his favor or, or you know, create this, uh, stack up some points in some point system or, or whatever? Are they an attempt to earn something from God. Another one about choices. Are our choices a response to God's free gift of salvation? Are you simply responding? Am I simply responding to that free gift and living in the context of Jesus' free gift of salvation? Not having to panic about whether I'm good enough or not good enough. Not have to panic about if I got to earn something from God or if I do enough good that that somehow he'll like me more or he'll bless me more or any of that? Am I simply living in the free gift of salvation that God has created? Am I living in that grace, knowing that God cannot love me any more than he already does? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves oftentimes when it comes to making uh, uh, choices because these three things will affect your decision-making processes on a daily basis. They will affect how you live. They will affect how you relate with your spouse or, or your kids. They will affect how you work in the workplace. They will affect how well you, uh, uh, you know, how well you do in school. They will affect your ministry. They will affect... Uh, your future. Are we living in the free gift of salvation? I'm going to ask Daniel to come back on up and lead that last worship song. Appreciate you guys coming today. Look forward to uh, uh, meeting again this next week. After this last worship song, I'll close in prayer and uh, just uh, invite you at this time to stand and worship with us.